listeners, this is Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars. We all love to eat. Well, I would like to tell you about my friends at the Rib Shack Barbecue on West Bay Drive in downtown Largo. Their menu offers family-sized takeout dinners like delicious ribs, chicken, beef, and pork, or sit-down barbecue dinners, sandwiches, and even desserts. They will also cater your party. Everything is barbecued fresh using real oak for that great smoky flavor. So visit my friend, Corey, at the Rib Shack Barbecue in downtown Largo, West Bay Drive, or call them for a takeout order at 727-501-9090. That's 727-501-9090. They truly have the best smoking barbecue in town. Oh, and be sure and check out their great barbecue sauce. That's the Rib Shack Barbecue in downtown Largo, 727-501-9090. I'm telling Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars sent you. Looking for car shows? Then look no further than FLACarshows.com. On your computer or on your mobile device, FLACarshows.com is a comprehensive list of automotive events plus videos and news articles. Whether you're looking for car shows, cruise-ins, meetups, automotive festivals, cars and coffees, or anything else relating to an internal combustion engine, then this is a site for you. Check it out online or on your phone at FLACarshows.com. There is no place on earth too forbidding. There is no adventure too dangerous to dare. There is no dream of wealth and glory too impossible for the man who would be king. Connery and Kane. Rogue and renegade. Reckless and fearless soldiers of fortune on the richest adventure of their life. Across a thousand miles of danger, come with Sean Connery and Michael Caine as they try to capture a whole country, a scheme for rascals to become royalty in the long-lost land of Alexander the Great, Rudyard Kipling's The Man Who Would Be King. They share the treasure. They share the danger. They share the adventure. John Connery, Michael Caine, and Christopher Plummer in John Huston's The Man Who Would Be King. Set the Wayback Machine. Yes, sir, Mr. Peabody. Hi, this is Rick Derringer, and you are listening to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Well, hey, listeners, welcome. You're tuned into Nostalgic Radio and Cars, and I'm your show host, Robert. Run your computers in Google Tan Talk, 1340.com, and you can see us live here in the studios in downtown Clearwater. Don't forget to check out our website, golfstreammotorsports.com, where you can find out all about us. And if you've missed any of our shows, you can Google nostalgicradioandcars.com, and you can pull up and listen to on our podcast all 537 songs. After today, 538. Good evening, Bobby. How are you? Yeah, we p- good, but we played a lot more songs than that. So that's, yeah, that's 530 true. shows. It's 538 Probably 1,038 uh, songs, because two songs a show may, on average. Yeah. So uh, tell me how you doing behind the COVID, the COVID for sure, 21, 20, 21, 22, 23, 24. Christmas COVID glass. Yeah, yeah right. Uh, feeling glass. very protected. You feel very protected. As always. Bobby's got his... Uh, Yep. Sanitation yeah. devices here. Yep. Hazmat suit is on. Uh, yes, oh, yeah. Yep, yep, yep. Okay, so, hey, we got a really exciting wow. show for you tonight. In about five minutes, too. <laughs> yeah, and we are going to continue with uh, Nostalgic Creating Cars, the rock and roll show. <laughs> yes. Because we have another musical <laughs> guest. Yeah, we're tired of cars. <laughs> yeah, we're tired of cars for a while. Speaking of cars, all right, we, you know, we, we, all, we got a minute or two for our and first I'm gonna story. And I'm going to tape over the end of the banner. Oh, yeah. It's just radio. <laughs> okay, so uh, uh, how many people out there have ever driven... Uh, uh, something through a garage door. Okay, well, we have a garage door story for you tonight. Now, I was Florida over, man. Uh, yeah, I was over. <laughs> yeah, Florida man. Florida man. I recall over the years, at my shop in Pinellas Park in 66th Street, I had a 14 foot overhead doors and they were 12 feet wide, 10 or 12 feet, something like that. Okay, I was usually pretty careful. But I have been to friends of mine's shops where they have forgot to have the door high enough and they managed to either clip it, nick it, or just absolutely mutilated. I remember I was working with a friend of mine, John, one time, and we were moving some stuff, and it was getting kind of dark, and he was in his forklift. And I was watching him for the most part, except this one particular time, I was 
down the other side of the yard, and I was loading some stuff and uh, getting some stuff ready for the next load, and he forgot the door was kind of not all the way up, and very carefully customized the door. <laughs> well, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, sports we fans, have another car guys. <laughs> yeah, we have another friend that uh, did that last night. And uh, so while we were there... And Scooby's not in the room. And so. Scooby's not in the room. No, no, it wasn't Scooby-Doo. So there we were with this door that, again, we just missed it by, or he missed it by, what did you say, about four or five inches? And it's one thing when you pull in, but then keep in mind, you got to back out. Okay, you got to get... So that's where you do double the damage. You know, it's one thing pulling in... Um, overhead doors are some good ones and there are some crappy ones. Well, in this case, it took us hours to kind of figure out what we had to do, and we got it all taken care of. And we were very, very fortunate because uh, we bent the tracks. So when we bent the tracks, fortunately, the morons that built the doggone building didn't have the two bolts in the top, so it actually came loose. We just had to think about this, and that's the thing. You never panic. You think about what you got to do. So that's what we did. We very carefully unbolted all the tracks, slid them out, which was very difficult on an overhead roll-up door. And we got them out of there, put them down on the ground, straightened them as best we could, and then stuck them back up there. problem was it takes two, sometimes three people to do this whole process because what happens is the door will come loose and start flopping. So then you got to figure out what are you going to do there. You kind of have to, this has to happen once or twice before so you have an idea how to do it. Because if you don't, you'll have to call somebody, which we did. And then, uh, but we kind of figured it out our own because we'd been there, done that, or I hadn't been there, done that. Um, my friend had been now there, you done have the two, but I was the there times. when other guys did it, done that, been there, done that. So anyway, so we're well, looking for a uh, garage door sponsor. Yeah, we're looking for a garage door sponsor. <laughs> Rainer, let's call Rainer Doors. Anyway, uh, so after four hours later, we got that bad boy all back together, bolted up, and the comment was made: "Damn, it works better than it did before." Mm-hmm. Still had a little kink in the bottom. If you're not looking for it, you won't see it. But if you walk up to the door, it looks pretty straight. It's although at the very bottom, it's kind of messed up a little bit because that's the thing about aluminum. Metal, you can generally beat out and straighten for the most part, which we did. But the aluminum, and once it's wrinkled, it's wrinkled. It's crap. Crapola. How are we doing on time there, Bobby? Yeah, i got a couple more minutes. Okay, so we got a very special guest coming but, for you tonight. But speaking of aluminum, at least you weren't the Florida man that tied the DOT light bulb to his uh, roof of his car. He did over in what? Tampa. Florida man. Yeah. Tied... You know, one was knocked over. Yeah. So he hit he some, some, it. some little, uh, so he, you know, got some, I don't know, a little compact car. And he's sitting there driving this uh, big old DOT light pole down the road trying to get to a scrapyard. But, you know, you can't kind of noticeable when it's hanging over, I don't know. He five, might as well five, hooked six, it up. seven feet uh, yeah, on either side. <laughs> to a 12-volt and had a flash in it the rate he was going. And he just said, here I am. Come get me. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, he was wearing a pair of brace, brass or chrome bracelets later that afternoon, I'm sure. And really, the only reason he got he got stopped is because he had it tied with uh, uh, telephone wire. <laughs> telephone wire. Oh, wow. And he probably had the windows down and went through the roof a couple <laughs> yeah, times right. and looped it down. Okay. I got that one. That's uh, I've seen that before. I can tell you that when I, my shop used to be right down from Acre Iron, I would literally see people in a pickup truck with a rubber <laughs> hose wrapped oh, yeah. around and around and around the bumper and some guy's trailer hitch, dragging that thing down 66th Street where they hit the railroad tracks. On two occasions, they came loose. And there was a car lot on the other side of 66th Street. So when they hit that that uh, ramp going up to 66th Street, going north, going into 94th Avenue where Acre Iron was, or TMR, whatever it's called nowadays, they came loose and they took out the front line of that thing. And not only – it didn't happen just once. It happened twice. So, uh, yeah, uh, rubber hose is not exactly – that's uh, that was before the days of the Florida man, but a real true Florida man would, yeah, would, oh, yes. would have done that. Oh, there were back then. Yeah. How are we doing on time there, Tommy? It's time. It's time? Okay. So we're going to go take a commercial break right now, then we're going to play a song, song and then we're going to bring our special guest on for the evening. Ladies and gentlemen, you'll be treated to a very special guest. And the song that we're playing is a key, and the movie that we played, there was a little hint in that as well. Anyway, hey, you're t- tuning into Nostalgia Good into Cars. Don't touch that dial. We'll be right back.
All right, ladies and gentlemen, it's time to introduce our special guest for the evening. This gentleman is uh, one of the founding members of probably one of the most successful 70s, 80s pop band, 10CC and Godly and Cream. I'm delighted to welcome to the show this evening, Kevin Godly. Kevin, how are you? I'm pretty good. How are you? Pretty good. So you're all the way, literally, across the pond, as they say. I am speaking to you from half an hour outside Dublin and on. Wow. Well, for our listeners, t- uh, why don't you give us a little uh, short background on yourself, and then we'll segue into some uh, some music. A short background? Um, yes. Okay. Art school trained, uh, was into visuals before I was into audio, left college, found myself in the music business for a long time, did pretty well with a band called 10CC, uh, then migrated to half of 10CC called Godly and Cream. And in the 80s, we turned our hand to directing music videos. Uh, we left each other, we split up at the end of the 1980s, and I've been working in both mediums ever since. Interesting. Now, you mentioned you went to art school. Was that your first passion? Hmm. I wouldn't say it was my first passion. It was the only thing I could do that was any good. Um, I was a pretty crap student at college. Uh, I'm sorry, not at college, at school. I was hopeless at math, hopeless at geography, hope, hopeless at physics and chemistry. The only thing I showed any promise with was, was drawing. Um, and so on leaving school, I went to art college. Um, because I figured there would be a career as a graphic designer waiting for me at the other end. But while I was at college, I got interested in so many other aspects of the art world uh, and began to develop as a musician a long time alongside Lord Cream. And we moved more towards that as the years passed because it seemed to be a more exciting thing to do than graphic design. Your uh, early so, at what age did you kind of like start uh, getting really interested in music, and then and and which instrument did you kind of gravitate to, and why? Well, probably probably sort of about about fifteen onwards, I would think, because back in those days, a lot of kids near where I lived were were into music. We all loved them. Music coming out of the states, and being in a band was like a big deal. I first, my first band, I was playing bass very badly on a six-string guitar. Uh, once I found out I was bad at that, I started playing, trying to play drums on a, on a neighbor's drum kit and found that I had that kind of independent suspension thing required to play. And so I migrated to drums. And uh, what fun it was. Did the drums come kind of natural to you then? Is that what you're saying? More so than guitar, yeah. I found, I, I under, I, you know, when you talk about drums to anybody learning drums, they always say something like, it's, it's playing drums is like you're playing four different things at the same time. How's that possible? But I inherently understood that you're playing four parts of the same thing at the same time. And that knowledge somehow transmitted to each of my legs and arms. And I got it immediately. Interesting, because they say the same thing about pianists. They say, you know, a pianist yeah. thinks with both sides of his brain, and then yeah. and then you got to dissect it into four sections if you're playing the drums, right? Because you got both feet moving, both arms, and your head's bobbing around. Yeah, that's right. But the thing is, once you start thinking about it, it doesn't make sense unless it's a natural thing. It's not. I don't think it's something you can learn. I think that 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 facility has to exist would you say okay let's just draw an analogy here playing the drums and then you're an art student you know mm-hmm. is it kind of did the art come kind of natural to you as well drawing yeah pretty much as i said it was all i could really do it was the only thing that that, that meant anything to me when i was a kid i was i was bad at sports i wasn't a great uh, student at, at school but i used to draw all the time um, because I could and the work was quite good for my age and uh, people said I was good um, 
but when I was a kid, I, I had no idea how I could turn that into a useful way to make a living. Um, but I just followed my instinct, and, and I got myself to a place where there was a possible career as a graphic artist, and um, and that led to music. <laughs> it's insane, really, but it, that's kind of how it happened. But, the- but having that visual background was useful at the other end of the music business when we got into music video. And we're going to get into that. So in the early days, when you and, and uh, I guess it's LOL Cream, that's short for, yeah. Um, it's it's short, short for Lawrence, but now it means something else. Okay, right. But at any rate, so you and Lawrence, when you guys were originally starting, who were some of the musical influences that you uh, that kind of had an impact on you guys? Well, when we were first playing, we we used to go to parties and take drums and guitar and lamp with us, and we'd play. We'd play modern jazz. We were jazz freaks back in those days. Uh, jazz messengers, Cannonball, Adelaide, Roland Kirk, they were our heroes, so we played jazz. And then we gradually found ourselves gravitating towards the blues, rhythm and blues, pop to some degree uh, in the UK. Um, and eventually, uh, soul music, Motown, Stax, etc. So those those were the kind of the main influences that took us through the college years. When you formed 10CC in the early 70s, um, it's kind of like yeah. a it was a culmination of a couple guys. And I remember reading a long, long time ago um, because you had people from. Uh, um, Mindbenders and then Ohio Express and, w- and funny because on the radio one time they announced that 10CC was formerly Ohio Express and it really what it is is a member from Mindbenders a member member from uh, Ohio Express you and then ultimately you got you know you you weeded people out and you, and you had uh, your core group there and then the music was a little bit different I mean it was kind of like you would play you know kind of pop little bubblegum uh, later. You know, music, I mean, the influences are like the Beatles um, and uh, and Frank Zappa. I mean, it's just kind of like an interesting cross-section cross of styles. And then later, you guys were mimicked, you know? So tell us a little bit about that. Well, uh, first of all, I must put you, I must put you right. There, there were no members of the Ohio Express in the band. Oh, not? What? Uh, no. What? Okay, so what happened before we became 10 CC, we... We were session musicians. We were the house band at Strawberry Studios okay. in Stockport, um, house producers. So uh, Graham Goulman, who was, uh, had been working in New York with Cazanet's Cats, um, brought a bunch of sessions to England that were recorded at Strawberry, and we became the Ohio Express for two or three singles. Oh, really? It was it, it was that it was that period of time where other people people who were nothing to do with bands they just got session musicians in who recorded songs and they were put out as the Ohio Express. We were also the Crazy Elephant and God knows how many other bands briefly during that period of time. So songs like Yummy Yummy, Chewy Chewy, and Sausalito and stuff like that, which I remember because I was a kid back in the 60s and 69 when this stuff came out. <laughs> I mean, do you yeah. take credit for any of that? I think I met possibly Sausalito because that may have been written by uh, Graham Gorman. I don't think we were behind the other two that you mentioned. Yummy Yummy probably and Chewy Chewy. <laughs> no, I don't remember doing that. I think I'd remember if you'd done that. <laughs> Okay, well, yeah, and uh, interesting. Now, you know, there, I saw uh, just to jump forward. I saw another video in the in the in the eighties, and it, and I can't remember which song it was, but it, I believe it showed you playing the keyboards. Do you play the keyboards too a little bit? No, the only the only the only possibility I can think of if it, if the song was "I'm Not in Love," I would have been playing a Moog synthesizer and using Wonky as a bass drum. That might have been it. May have been that. Maybe not. So you had your your the I think Rubber Bullets was what the, one of the first albums that you had or second album, and you had some success with that. It, it was a track on the first album. Okay. And 
How much songwriting did you do at, at the very beginning? Uh, a lot, actually, because the, the band, the first hit that the band had in the UK was a song called Donna, which was a B-side. And it was a hit. It went to number two in the UK charts, and we didn't have an album ready to go. And back in those days, that was required. Uh, and so we set to work pretty quickly to construct an album, to write an album. And we re wrote and recorded it in about three weeks flat. Um, so a lot of writing and very, very quickly. The, when, you, when, when the pressure's on to write, or to, to write enough, a bunch of songs to fill up an album, do you, are, do you take a song and then that song kind of becomes the core song and then you use bits and pieces of that to kind of establish other songs? Is that uh, on the album? Is that kind of how the process works a little bit? Or do you, do you not have enough time to actually come up with, with different songs with, that are completely different and have a, 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 a different sound to them? You know how you you know how what I'm. Go ahead. I do. I know what you mean. Well, it, it, to be honest, it varies. And, and if we're talking about the first album, there were two basic writing teams. There were myself and Lord Cream, Graham Gorman and Eric Stewart was the other writing team. Mm -hmm. We both went in rooms and we wrote a song. And we offered it up, and if they, everyone liked it, we recorded it. During the recording, things would happen where we may change certain ideas, or any anybody could chip in ideas. But the most significant thing that happened during the recording of that first album was we weren't considering, we weren't comparing what we were doing to the work of our heroes. Um, and what I mean by that is when you're young and when you're starting out making music, you, you usually have some kind of role model. And if there's time, you compare it to your role model. And if it doesn't stand up, you do something else. There was no time to do that because we had three weeks. So pretty much everything we wrote, we recorded. And the amazing thing was that by doing it that way, by doing it by instinct and intuition, we avoided that trap of trying to sound like somebody else. In the early days when you were doing this, and let's just say after the first album, you kind of felt a little bit seasoned. And when you were working on the second album, who did you kind of collaborate with at that point in time? Was it, again, the same thing? All four guys went in the studio, you came up with your own ideas, your own songs, your own music, and then you went into production? Um, because yeah. It, go ahead. Yeah, that was it. That was we it? We didn't collaborate with anybody. That was it. We were our own. We were a completely self-contained unit. Okay. The song, um, I'm Not In Love, was that one of your songs that you wrote? I wish. You wish. <laughs> yeah. I had a big hand in arranging it and coming up with the way it was produced, but I didn't write the song. Okay. So when you're talking about arranging, what's involved in arranging? Is that getting all the instruments? Is that getting all the, uh, um, you know, doing all the, the, the sound and the mixing and, 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 and the timing involved with it? It's everything. It's all that. It's okay. So a song is usually, has usually been written on a piano or a guitar, and that's it. And the song exists. But it's the recording process is all about how you frame the song. Okay. And what gives it what gives it the atmosphere, and, that, and there's a million ways of doing that. Um, and we'd already recorded the song once. It was a terrible, cheesy bossa nova ballad thing and it was it was it was awful uh, and at the time we shelved it and came back to it later in the recording of the original soundtrack album and with a view to doing it in a completely different way uh, but out of desperation I suggested we do it all with voices so we did and it worked <laughs> it's always like that really in, in, in a studio where you where you give yourself the, the space and the time to try things, to experiment. This was this was an experimental procedure that actually worked incredibly well. 
Which record label did you guys sign with back in the day? I know there was a story that there was a connection with Virgin Records, but I think that came later or something. But early on, it was... No, it didn't, it, it didn't happen. We were, Our initial records, were, our first two albums were with Jonathan King's UK label. Mm-hmm. And then we moved, we thought we were moving to Virgin, but we actually ended up moving to uh, Polygram. Okay. Well, they were pretty big back in the day there, weren't they? Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. They were. Giorgio Gomelski, how does he fit into your program? Because he, was, uh, he wasn't exactly a manager, but he had a lot of influence with you guys, worked with you guys on a number of um, albums and production? Yeah. Not really, no. No? He, he, he was... He, uh, I remember... Did, did I say that... On leaving college, we immediately found ourselves in the music business. Yes. Um, that What actually happened is, on the day we graduated, we, we drove down to London for a recording session with Giorgio Gomelsky. Mm-hmm. Because he'd heard me sing on one of Graham's tracks. One of He'd heard me sing one of Lola and I's songs with Graham, or something. And he wanted to sign us to his Marmalade label. So we went down there for a recording session. Um, we recorded a few tunes with a few to appear on the Marmalade label. Unfortunately, only that one song appeared on the Marmalade sampler, and then Marmalade as a record label went bust. Oh. So our, our early post-art school career floundered immediately. Now, your voice range is falsetto, so it's more... Because usually when I hear you sing, you're you're singing high. And is it difficult to find... I mean, for you as a singer, you know, because a lot of songs, there's not a lot of falsetto um, uh, areas there that you... I mean, you know, not a, lot of, not a lot of songs go in that direction. Is it... Did you have to write... What makes you think I sing... Well, uh, I don't... I don't pardon me? What makes you think I sing a lot in falsetto? Well, it seems like every time I hear you sing, most of the time you're you're singing at the higher end. I mean, and I may, I may be wrong, but I mean, you know, just so kind of explain, uh, elaborate it. And because, you know, as I'm watching, I mean, or at least the the key sections, like when you when you're like the main focal point of the of the band and the song, your falsetto voice stands out among everybody else. Am I am I saying that right? Do you follow where I'm going with this? I don't know. Maybe. I mean. I, I'm trying to remember which songs it, it may be. I certainly couldn't hit those notes now. <laughs> okay. Um, in the later years of uh, Tenton CC, which was probably later 70s, that's when you guys kind of split off a little bit, and, and you and uh, LL Cream kind of went off and did your own, and it became Godly and Cream. What was the motivating yeah. factor there? We, you mean why did we why did we leave? Yes. Well, we were. I think we were about to record our third or fourth album, and the thing that had always intrigued us about making music in the first place was the element of surprise. Mm-hmm. And traditionally, every album we approached, it was always about what music we could make within a period of say three months. That was the limitation we gave ourselves and whatever that turned out to be was the record. There was no there was no real planning or discussion about what should be on the record. But by the time we came to make our final album, we kind of knew what the successful formula was, if you like. So there was a meeting where things were said like, well, we need a couple of funny ones. We need a, a long and complicated arty one like you do, Kevin Law. And we need a romantic one like I'm not in love. And so on and so forth. It, it was kind of it was kind of preordained in a way, the kind of music that we should be making for this album. And that felt distinctly uncomfortable to us. We'd kind of run out of steam. And we were young and we were crazy and we 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 didn't want to do that. So we, we bailed, actually. Well, it's interesting because um, I've had a number of artists on my show and and the the term, the 
producers, the record people, the managers, everybody wanted us to to be more commercial. We didn't want to do that. We wanted to do our own thing, play our own music, yeah. write our own songs. So basically, there's a lot of truth in that, and that's what forces, in a way, or um, kind of causes artists, musicians, to kind of go in a different direction, and sometimes even get out of the business entirely. Is that a kind of a fair statement? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I, I have no idea what would have happened had we ignored those impulses, but we just went for it. And I don't think we'd have had half the adventures we did have had we have stuck around any longer. You know, we got we got to make a, a very long and complicated album on our own. I got to sing with Sarah Vaughan. We discovered music video. We, we we did lots of things that would have been totally out of our reach if we had to stay if we had stayed safe and, and carried on doing things within the band. So at the time it seemed foolhardy, and but in the end it was the right thing to do. I think. When you look at bands, let's say like the Rolling Stones, and uh, um, I'll just use Aerosmith as an example. Bands have been around for 20, 30, 40 years, and they have this longevity. Yeah. And then other bands, three, four years they're here, three, four years they're with another group of guys, and they're sharing talents. They go solo, they come back, uh, they have reunions. What's your thoughts on that, and what do you think attributes to that? Well, they're all different, you know, what... If you're a group of people and you get on and you enjoy doing what you're doing mm-hmm. and you feel like continuing doing that because it's what you do, that's fine. I don't have any problem with that. All I know is it just wasn't right for me at the time. Um, and you just make a decision. And sometimes it's a random decision because you can't always see that far into the future. You can guess, but you're not always right. Um, and there's always going to be ups and downs, but with us, probably because we had an art school background, and being at art school, you were always taught to to look for things that are perhaps beyond what you can expect from yourself. Um, and that stayed with us, I think. So once once we were in a position where we felt, oh God, we're going to have to repeat ourselves ad nauseum, that was anathema. So <laughs> we uh, we looked for ways to avoid that. And have other things. When you and uh, and LOL uh, joined together and became Godly and Cream, you had a huge success with the song "Cry," and yeah. the video was actually a pretty decent video. And yeah. about what year was that? Was that early '80s when that came about? Was yeah, around about '85, I would say, something like that. Okay, so now we're deep into the MTV thing, and. Hello? So oh, still yeah, I'm still here. Um, so now we're deep into the MTV. It's been around since '81, '82, '83, somewhere around in there. '83, I think, is when it, when it, when it really kind of hit the stage, so to speak. And uh, so videos, music videos are the big thing. And to your point, I was listening one time to an interview, and you made a comment, and it was like, okay, so our video was about the song, so the listener could kind of make his own assumption his own thoughts and 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 visualize the song the lyrics versus when you have a a video where they basically have a set there's something going on and it's almost like that sticks with you so whenever you hear that song no longer do you think of the song as a song but you think of it as like you you think of that video what's your thoughts on that and then you know well I, I, I can't speak for anybody else, but it was at the beginning of uh, the 80s, the late 70s and 1980s, there was no video industry as such. Mm-hmm. So nobody nobody really knew what they were doing when they were making a music video. So there was a lot of things that were essentially, you know, either the band just playing or, or um, trying to tell the story of the lyrics, a narrative. And neither of those situations were were particularly attractive to us. I mean, I think we were pretty selfish directors because the kind of films we made were the kind of films we wanted to see out there, the music. And nine times out of ten, they were were slightly abstract, 
they didn't necessarily deal directly with what the song was about. All they did was create an atmosphere that the music could live in. Um, because, you know, if you think about it, if, if the singer is going, well, I woke up this morning and there was this girl in the bed next to me, and then I took her to work, and then I met her for lunch, and you see all that happening, mm-hmm. you don't want to hear him say it, sing it, and see it. It's like, it's double the information, and nine times out of ten, if, if there is a story there, you want to put your own characters in it. You want to invest your real life into it not see theirs, and, uh, which is why we avoided narratives at all costs. It, it always feels like the, the job of a video is to frame song. Uh, and it can be a simple frame or an ornate frame, but that's what it's there for. It's not to be there instead of the song. So when you produced your videos, did you incorporate that concept as well, or were you more or less like the producer, and then they came to you and said, this is the song, this is what we want done, and then you basically produced it kind of like under their auspices? No, well, no, because we were the directors. When we did our okay. own stuff, same as, same as with anybody else, we were in, we were in charge. Okay. We were, just more, we were just more difficult performers than anybody else. <laughs> uh, directing each other was a nightmare. But, but, but it was always about coming up with an idea that we felt would live uh, amongst all the other stuff that was out there because it was different and it somehow caught the spirit of the music. Okay. Who are some of the people that you worked with? I, I think I was reading up, you did some, uh, some stuff with Sting, with uh, the police. You did some stuff with um, Brian Adams um, yep. and Duran Duran, you too. Um, tell us some stories about working with these people and some of their songs. Well, the great thing about working with people like these are that they they understand the power of the medium and how how it can help, not just in terms of selling records, but in terms of making them look interesting and making them look good and also giving them something different to try. Now that's something that's always been important to me. Don't if you're working with an artist, don't give them something to do that they've done a million times before. Put them in a situation that challenges them. It doesn't have to be an enormous challenge, but but if there's something in there that they can grasp and grab hold of, and have their performance chops too, it's 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 something that makes them feel good and moves the whole process along smoother and create something more exciting to watch at the end of the day. Do you, when, you, when you're going in there and you're doing these, do you often end up changing a lot of stuff that was, um, let's just say, scripted? No. No, because uh, most of the stuff I do isn't scripted in the true sense of the word. They are, there are a number of setups okay. that I shoot and cover as much as possible. Um, and the re- and once sometimes you you change things during the shoot because you run out of time or something isn't working as well as you thought, so you change en route. You have to you have to be nimble in that respect. But mostly you stick to what you're after and the real work, the real creation of the finished item comes during the editing. But everything changes at every single point in the process. The only time it's finished is when it's on air. Back in the t- and, 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 and the late 80s then, when you were in the early 90s when you were doing these videos, did, yeah. did you enjoy doing that more so than actually being a musician and playing in, in, in the band and stuff? It's just it's a different process. Making music is a more personal is a more personal pursuit. Okay. Um, uh, whereas making a video, I mean, if you think about it, all the videos that we made and still make, you are commissioned to do them for a piece of music that already exists. So you are an interpreter. When you're making your own music, you are making the thing that's going to be framed. So it's a completely different mental process. Okay. Do you experience the same amount of gratitude 
when you're when you finish and produce your video as you would if you were doing your own music songwriting and then uh, you know producing the actual song as well I mean is it a similar experience in, in terms of gratification yeah it, I mean there are many similarities between the two in that you know in, in both kinds of situations you you are leading in a way you're either director or, or the or the writer and performer you're possibly working with other people, either musicians or a film crew. And then you're mixing if it's a piece of music and you're cutting if you're creating a film. So there are similarities. But if people express delight in what you've done or horror at the other end, the effect is exactly the same. Okay. In 1990... I think it was, some of the early 90s, you were working on, you experimented with a song, and, 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 and I want to hear your story too, as you started out with something, and then you let it go around the world, so to speak, and you had other artists basically yeah. pick up and then kind of uh, add their spin to it, so to speak. What was your original intention with that, and how did it ultimately come out, and did you have any influence on in it, or did you just kind of like let it ride? Interesting questions. Um, what happened was there was a series of programs uh, on BBC Two in the UK. Mm-hmm. I think it was called One World Week. And there were a series of programs uh, about environmental concern. And they wanted some kind of event film to conclude the week. So they asked me to come in to chat about it. And their original idea was to do uh, do a concert, a bit like Live Aid. And I thought that was, no, no, you're way late. That's been done a million times. And I had this idea in the back of my mind called, well, it didn't have a name at the time, but it, it was eventually called One World, One Voice, which was beginning a piece of music in one part of the world, filming it being made, and then taking that piece of music to other cities around the world and getting people to add to it while we filmed them adding to it. That was the concept. And I had to present that along with the producer to a consortium of broadcasters. And surprisingly, they said, yes, let's do it. (laughs) So I had to get a a bunch of interesting people together to help me. I got a a wonderful uh, music producer, Rupert Hine, along with me. Uh, my uh, cinematographer was Joe Dyer. I, I had a production team and very little equipment, and off we went. And we began the process in New York with Sting. Uh, picked up a load of people there, um, and the process began to work. And essentially, It was essentially for BBC Two. It was two programs, one called One World, One Voice, one was a documentary, and one was the finished piece of music being made, watching it being made, and listening to it. Uh, and there was also a CD that went out of the finished piece of music, both of which are about to be re-released again. Interesting. Interesting. That brings me to my next question. Uh, somewhere in the a few years back, you were working on... I believe it was called an app that was Whole World Band. And you were working with that, and now here we are, because we're all aware how fast technology just exponentially just improves. And now we have Zoom. So give us a comparison between your thoughts on on, uh, your Whole World Band app, and now we have Zoom, is there a correlation, and have you done Zoom as well? Well, the interesting thing about it is just going all the way back to what we've just been discussing, One World, One Voice. Mm-hmm. There seems to be part of my character that is drawn to musical collaboration. Okay. Um, so I seem to have done it in many, many different forms. And I, I wonder if it's partially because I'm a drummer that I can't play another instrument. So if I want to write music, I usually have to work with other people. 
And the latest iteration of that is my current solo album, which again was done remotely. And I'm tapping into people all around the world and asking them to send me pieces of instrumental music that I can turn into songs. Turn into songs. So it's part of my DNA. Which brings us to Muscle Memory, which is your latest album, which is that collaboration, correct? Yes, very neatly done, I thought, as well. Okay. You know, something else <laughs> I was going to mention to you is on your website, there's a lot of artwork on there, and it's kind of surrealism yeah. a little bit. Now, is that yeah. your own personal works? Yeah. Okay. So the music and art really together is your passion, and you've managed to combine them. And uh, so your artwork, do you do any of that for um, display purposes? Is any of it up for sale? Or is it just for your own edification that you kind of like, hey, I did this, this is, I'm happy with this? Well, I apply it to things. I, I've done the, the cover and uh, all the artwork for the booklet for the Muscle Memory Project. Um, and recently, the last few years, I've been very heavily into collage. So all the work in, I've been doing over the last few years is collage. Um, but I enjoy, doing, I enjoy doing both sides of the equation because one seems to lean heavily on the other. I don't know if it does that for other people, but I seem to derive benefit from bouncing one thing off against the other. Um, I don't see things as one or the other. They're, they're both a part of the whole to me. So if I'm doing a piece of music, there is usually a visual component to it. In fact, I made one video for a track called Expecting a Message for Muscle Memory, which I've shot and edited myself, which I've never done before, really. Um, on my iPhone. So it, and even when I'm writing lyrics and, and thinking about music, I'm seeing things. I'm, I'm visualizing things. So the two go hand in hand. So you have muscle memory. Is there going to be a follow-up? Well, I've certainly got enough material for it. Um, because I was sent 286 pieces of music, so... Uh, I've got enough to choose from. I guess it depends on a number of things. It depends on uh, if I think I can do better with some other tracks and if I think that this this first outing uh, with my own solo album has, has done well enough, I guess, has attracted enough interest and people like it enough. If that happens, then I would be inclined to do it again. Wow. Well, I wish you the best of luck. Kevin, I want to thank you very much for uh, hanging out with us here at Nostalgic Radio and Cars. And uh, if people want to find out more about you, how do they go about doing it? And your new album? Well, they should, oh, they should check in on the website of the State 51 Conspiracy label, uh, UK label, who are, who are rolling out this, this, uh, this album. You could also check my website, which is kevin-godley.com, um, uh, which will tell them what I'm up to now. But the label is probably the best way to to look at what I'm up to. The record itself will be available to buy on the 17th of December on Amazon, and they can also order it directly from the record label. Okay, very good. Just out of curiosity, you mentioned 51. Is there any correlation between that and Area 51 here in the United States? Out in New I Mexico? Honestly, I have the clue. Okay, I well. Really I've never asked them, but that's an interesting thought. Okay, I just thought I'd throw that out there. But anyway, Kevin, again, I want to thank you very much for coming on the on Nostalgia Radio Cars and spend some time with us. It was great stories. We look forward to uh, hearing more about you. I'm sure a lot of my uh, listeners are very familiar with your uh Works with 10cc and uh, Godly and uh, Cream, and I wish you uh, all the success and uh, uh, Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. And the same to you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Okay, well, that was a very interesting interview. Um, you know, it's funny because we uh, the song "Cry" uh, 
uh, I was debating whether to play that. I played the um, uh, the the man who would be king with Sean Connery and uh, and Michael Caine, of course, you know, the two really great English and Scottish actors. But uh, the song "Cry." I don't know if how many of you guys watched um, Miami Vice, but there was one episode where Ted Nugent was on there. And he played, obviously, a gun runner. What else? Uncle Ted. And uh, so he, uh, I guess him and Tubbs kind of had an interest in the same girl, but she kind of, I don't know, she she turned and then basically kind of set Crockett up where he was going to get waxed by uh, Nugent. Unfortunately, it worked the other way around. But at the end of the song, they uh, played uh, Cry by Godly and Cream. So it's a good song. In fact, that was one of the things I always liked about Miami Vice. It came out right around the uh, MTV period, and they had a lot of, you know, Glenn Fry was on there, um, a number of actors, uh, um, a number of uh, musicians were on. It was a good show. So uh, anyway, maybe someday we might get uh, Sonny Crockett to uh, hang out with us here at Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Uh, I know Tubbs is still around in Florida. In fact, our friend... uh, David uh, Martino, who actually owns the Miami Vice, is in contact with uh, some of the, the uh, past uh, cast members of uh, Miami Vice. But anyway, I want to thank my friend uh, Kevin Godley at 10CC. And uh, in the meantime, don't forget, check us out here every Tuesday night on the 10 Talk Radio Network between 7 and 8 p.m. for the most fascinating and legendary names in music and the automotive world. And uh, don't forget, hey, if you get hungry and you're downtown Largo... 426 West Bay Drive, some of the best ribs in Clearwater. Don't forget, you want to know where the car shows are? Well, guess what? Go to flacarshows.com. Meekums is the big deal in uh, January. In the meantime, I want to see you guys some of the car shows this weekend. Leadfoot City, third signing of the month. In the meantime, everybody stay safe, drive carefully, and love your family. WTAN, Clearwater. FM 106.1. WDCF, Dade City. FM 102.3. WZHR, Zephyr Hills. FM 104.3. Listen.